I'll draw your attention back to the book of Revelation, last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and we'll be dealing with verse 7 through 13 this morning. Revelation 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord, our Heavenly Father, Sovereign God, we thank you that you have brought us to this place once again. Lord, that that we might look to your word, we might be fed by it, Lord. You have prepared before us a great table in the presence of our enemies. Lord, that we might feed on your word, that even while we are here in this world, even while we are in this wilderness, we have a great table before us. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for the promise that we may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, that we will be there eternally. We will no more go in and out. We'll dwell there. Lord, bless your word here this morning. Lord, pray that you'd bless the preaching of it, bless the proclamation of it. Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, give us hearts to discern and give us wisdom to understand what you would have us to see this morning. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his work. Lord, we thank you for the the way that he is open, that that sinners might be saved. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that brings life, that opens eyes, open hearts, that they might receive your word, receive your truth, that they might have eyes to see Christ, eyes to see the kingdom, eyes to see themselves. We thank you for it, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I'd like to encourage you here this morning just to take a brief moment and 
and take a look, not with our physical eyes, but with, with our, our eyes of understanding at the world around us today. Everywhere we look, and I think that you'll agree with me here, I think it's pretty evident to see, even to those who aren't Christians, that everywhere we look around us, we find minds that are groping, groping around in darkness for some sense of truth. Uh, hearts that are, are hungry for something lasting and enduring. Is that not what the world is looking for? Why do we chase after this and chase after that? Why do we chase after monetary wealth? Why do we chase after satisfaction in, in our occupations? We're trying to find some sense of worth, something that endures for longer than a fleeting moment. Well, where in the world can ones such as these who are searching, who are hungry, who are looking for these things, where in the world can one such as these find something to fill that void? Where? Well, there's only one, church, one place. It's, it's the church. The true church where God has opened the doors wide for the proclamation of the gospel to a lost and dying world is the only place that one such as these are going to find anything of eternal, of enduring value. And what is it that this church proclaims? It proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel which Paul was not ashamed of is that gospel that we are not to be ashamed of. We are not to shrink from its proclamation or the message that it has because it is quite simply the words of life. The doors are wide here in this world today. The need for the gospel is absolutely overwhelming. Look around you. It is overwhelming the need that this world has for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look around. Desolation, turmoil, fear, shame, immorality, hatred, wrath. We could sum it up by saying that the world is lost and without hope if the gospel of Jesus Christ is not unashamedly and boldly proclaimed. The door is open. The fields are ready for sowing. John 4.35, Christ said, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Luke 10.2, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, they're few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. It's not our harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
I pray that we are strengthened this morning when we look at the text that's written to this church here in Philadelphia. Written first to them and and through them to us, we hear and read these words that are ultimately meant to be heard by the church in every age and in every place. So let's take a look at the, the letter to the church here in Philadelphia. Verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. Well, Philadelphia was a city in modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was 25 miles southeast of Sardis, which we looked at the last time. And it sits about midway between the Hermes River and Mount Molus. Uh, the history of the city, it was the second city of the Lydian Empire, We talked about Sardis being a Lydian city last time. But it was the second city in the Lydian Empire. It was founded in 133 BC and named after Attalus II, who was the king of Pergamum from 159 BC to 138 BC. Attalus was called Attalus Philadelphos, which was the given name to him because of his loyalty and love for his brother. Philadelphos means brother lover, from which is derived the name Philadelphia, or the city of brotherly love. It was founded with the purpose of being a missionary city. It was founded with the purpose of spreading the Greek language and Greek culture into the Lydian and Phrygian empires making it itself a missionary city of sorts uh, from its very founding. It even became, came to be known as Little Athens because it was so, uh, so well, uh, well brought into this Greek culture and this Greek society and the way of living. This city was built in a region who had a great amount of seismic activity. Uh, The soil was rich from the volcanic activity that had been prevalent in the area, and it was troubled often by earthquakes and tremors. And this will come into play, I think, a little bit uh, as we go through this. But it was rich in gardens and vineyards because of the the quality of of the soil. In AD 17, Philadelphia and 10 other cities were destroyed by a great earthquake, and it had to be rebuilt. After rebuilding, the city continued to be plagued by these tremors and aftershocks from this great earthquake. And many of the people that had previously lived in the city were fearful that these tremors, these aftershocks, would cause the buildings to collapse once again on them. So they moved their residences out of the city. And they dwelt in the open spaces and built their homes in the open spaces on the outskirts of the city necessitating that for work and for commerce and for buying and selling of goods, they would go into the city and back out of the city. Well, it's here we find that Christ addresses the church that was located here in Philadelphia. And he starts by once again introducing to this church who he is. He says in verse 7, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Like our Lord does in all of these seven letters, 
He starts by calling the letters readers, or the, the ones that it's addressed to and its hearers, to see something very specific about who our Lord is. This is in a fashion, as the whole Bible is, an autobiography of sorts, God writing to his people, inspired words through his prophets, through his servants, through his apostles, who he is and how he wants to be revealed to his people. It is the words of Christ telling us, hear the words that I have spoken to you, and these are the words of the Holy One. The Holy One. Well, this calls us back to Revelation 1. Once again, we see this in all the seven letters. It calls us back to Revelation 1, where John sees Christ, and his vision is recorded as seeing this one who has hair on his head as being white like white wool, like snow. It is pure. It denotes holiness. This picture of Christ with his white hair, like, like white wool, like snow. It, it depicts his holiness, his sinlessness. And it is in contrast to us who are not by our fallen nature in any way holy. When we see this, we are, we are not, like I said, in our fallen nature, holy beings. So when we see this, we can't help but see a contrast between him in his holiness and us in our sin. The brilliance of his holiness is unmatched in all creation. There is none like it. There is nothing which can be equal to it. It creates this contrast. It doesn't show the similarity between Christ and us and these words that he tells, the, the words of the Holy One. It creates a contrast between us and the vast difference in our purity, in our holiness. You can take an ivory-colored dress, just by way of example. I don't know how many times I've seen this. Or, or uh, while you go into to Lowe's and you go and you find a... Uh, what you think is white in the paint aisle. And you see it, no, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this pure? Isn't this white? And then you find the bright white. And you hold it up next to that. It's like the wedding garment. The wedding garment that's ivory versus the one that is pure, that is brilliant white. This looks beautiful until you see it next to that which is purely white. And then you can't help but make a contrast between the two. This one is not, not white. This one is not pure. This one is not holy. Can't help but make that contrast. This is what essentially happens in Isaiah 6. If you turn with me real quick, I know this is a very, very, very familiar passage of Scripture. But in Isaiah 6, this is the, the vision that Isaiah the prophet has of, of Christ. In the year, uh, Isaiah 6, 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the tra train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said it created a contrast. Isaiah sees Christ sees the Lord high and lifted up and sees even the angelic beings crying out to him, holy, holy, holy. And he says, woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why does he say that? Because there's a contrast that's created here. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I have glimpsed holiness. And I see myself for what I am. Woe is me. I'm undone. I am lost. It is in seeing the Holy One that even the great prophet Isaiah, the great prophet of God, sees himself in the light of Christ's holiness. Woe is me, I'm undone, I'm lost, I'm unclean. I thought I was bright, oh, oh but my eyes have now seen holiness. That which is pure, that which is holy, that which is white, it's everything that I am not by my nature. And I am ever, if I am ever to have a hope of being holy, I must be in him. Verse 6 of Isaiah 6 says that an angel came and touched Isaiah's lips with a hot coal and said his guilt is taken away and his sins are atoned for. The Holy One himself has atoned for Isaiah's undoneness, his uncleanness, his sin. And this is the one who writes the letter to this church at Philadelphia. He said, John, record these words to this church, the words of the Holy One. The Holy One who takes guilt away. The Holy One who atones for sin by His precious blood, which we talked about in the last time we looked at the letter, the last letter to Revelation. There at Sardis. The precious blood of Christ who can wash our garments white in His own blood. Remember the verse that we looked at, Revelation 7, 14. The robes have been dipped in His blood. It is Christ alone, the Holy One, who can set a people apart to be holy. Set apart and brought into His service. A vessel to be used for honor out of the same lump of clay that one is made for dishonor. It is Christ who takes that lump of clay given to him by his Father in eternity past and by his holiness, by his merit, sets them apart and makes them to be holy. What a message to this church that they serve 
And they are here commended by this one through the words of the Holy One. And then he goes on to say, the true one. The true one. It's so amazing to look at this and see what Christ is telling us here about himself uh, to us and to the church in Philadelphia. You know, we often see an object or a replica of an object, something important to history or, or something that's famous uh, that we haven't had a chance to see with our own eyes or experience in person or touch with our own hands. Um, or maybe we see, uh, I, I think, the, the quintessential or the, or the normal thing I think of when I think about this is the Grand Canyon. How often does someone go to the Grand Canyon and you see pictures of it when they return? Or Niagara Falls or something like that, and you see the pictures, and you're impressed by the pictures, right? But what invariably does the person tell you that's showing you the pictures? you got to be there. you got to see it to believe it. You actually have to experience it to know what it's really like. Well, we have this two-dimensional picture of it, but it's, it, it falls far short of really understanding what it is to stand there at the edge of the Grand Canyon. I've never been there. I haven't been able to see it in its grandeur. The Niagara Falls, I'll never forget standing at the edge of Niagara Falls and watching the water and hearing the roar and the immensity and the grandeur of it all and thinking, video didn't show this. I didn't feel this when I saw the video. I didn't hear this when I saw the video. I didn't see this. I didn't understand what it really was like. Well, Christ says he's the true one. I'm what you once pictured in symbols and in types and in all the foreshadowings of the Old Testament. But now I'm revealed to you as I truly am. I am the true one. Oh, it, 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 it's true that he's true as opposed to the false. There were many false messiahs that came. And he is true as opposed to any of the false messiahs. But he is true in that he is the reality. He is the substance of those things pictured for us by types and shadows in the Old Testament. He's the one in the first chapter of Revelation, verse 18, who said, I am the living one. I am the one who died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. All those animal sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to me, but they weren't the true sacrifice. There's not a single one of those lambs, those goats, those bulls, those doves, anything that was sacrificed in the Old Testament that ever came back to life. Not a single one of them. He tells us in Hebrews, through inspiration to the writer of Hebrews, that these sacrifices could never take away sin. They pointed to that which was the reality, that which was the substance of what they pointed to. They pointed to the true one. They pointed to Christ, the true sacrifice. 
the one who not only died as a sacrifice, but rose again in victory over sin and the power of sin, which is death. He was the true one who death could not hold. Raised in victory over death and sin. Satisfying the wrath of his father for the guilty. He is the true one. He is the substance. He is the reality. He is the truth of all those things that were pictured in the Old Testament. Job said it, did he not? In Job 42.5, listen, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I'm past the type. I'm past the foreshadowing. I'm past the picture of the thing Job experienced Christ Jesus. He saw him. What was Job's response? The exact same thing that Isaiah's response was. Repentance. Repentance. And then he says, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Well, the keys of David. This is once again pointing back to Revelation 1, where Christ is revealed as the one who has the keys of death and Hades. It's not a direct reference to this, but instead is a reference which has the same outcome, the same meaning. And this goes along with the next revelation of Christ to us and to, uh, to us in that he, he has this, uh, these, these keys of David and he opens doors and he shuts doors. If he opens the door, no one's going to shut it. And if he closes the door, nobody can open it back up. He alone has the authority to do this. We have stated several times as we've looked at these first three chapters in Revelation that John is steeped in Old Testament visions and pictures and imagery, right? This is how his mind makes sense of some of what he is seeing in this vision. The Lord shows him something and he can't help but reference it back to scriptures that he has known, that he has seen, that he has preached from, been ministered by the Holy Spirit to him and to his heart. These are how he sees these visions in Old Testament types and pictures. Well, if you turn with me to Isaiah 22, this is where this, this reference actually comes from. Get my fingers to cooperate here this morning. Isaiah 22. We find in this chapter a rebuke on a faithless steward over the house of David. His name was Sheba. And if we would take the time, we could have read verse 15 through 19 of Isaiah 22, where God tells Isaiah that he will remove the faithless Sheba. And then we come to verse 20, and that's where I want us to, to read here this morning. Verse 20 of Isaiah 22. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him 
with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulders or his shoulder, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. This is where we have this reference that Christ is making to himself that he has the keys of David. It's he who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Here is what John is told to be recording of what he sees of Christ and how Christ wants the church in Philadelphia to understand who he is. He tells the church, and this will be important in just a moment, but he tells the church that he is the one with the keys. He is the one with the authority to open and shut. It's by him and him alone that access is denied or access is granted. Like Eliakim, he has been granted that authority. Eliakim, remember Christ is the true one. Eliakim is a picture, a type of Christ. He is a prototype. He's not the true one. He's but the symbol of the true one. He is the symbol of who Christ says that he is. He's the true one. He is the one who all authority has been given to. He is the one who has the actual keys of David that were pictured for us. So Eliakim had the authority within the household of David to allow someone to come into the household. He could open the door for them. Or he could tell them, you're not allowed to enter and bar them from the gate. Well, that was over just the house of David. Christ Jesus, the true one who has the true keys of David, has authority to open the door or shut the door to any and all of mankind into the kingdom of God. This is somewhat reminiscent of the story that we know of the the ark, Noah's ark. If you remember, um, and it's no wonder that we have these because Scripture is, Old Testament Scripture especially, is full of these pictures and types and shadows. But when Noah and his family were brought into the ark, there was an open door for them to enter. Was there not? They built the door open. But what happened? In Genesis chapter 7, we have recorded for us, it wasn't them that shut the door. We read that the Lord shut them in. They entered, and all those animals that God had purposed to preserve through the flood, they entered in, and God himself shut the door. These are the keys in a greater sense 
that Christ holds in his hand. He has been given the authority. He has the true keys of David to open the door and no one else can shut it or to shut the door and no one else can open it. It's Christ who gives access to the kingdom. There's no other way. There is no other one who can open this door. Scripture records Christ himself saying in John 10, 7 through 9. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, by my authority, by my opening the door, and will go in, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Well, this is who Christ is presenting himself as to this particular church. He's the holy one. He's the true one. He's the one who has the keys of David. And then he says, I know your works, but I have set before you an open door and no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We come to this, this portion of scripture here to the church in Philadelphia where he says to them, I know your works, I know you have little power. They were either small in number, small in influence, or maybe they were poor and without much means. I, I really think that this is probably in reference to them being small in number. They were not a large church. But Christ tells them that though you have but little power, you have kept my word, you have not denied my name, your love for me has been visible in that you have not hidden the word of Christ, the message of Christ, from this city. You have guarded it, and you have been true to my word and to my name. You have honored my name, you have made it known to those around you, and in, in this all in spite of your little strength. Though you be little in strength. You have lived by my word, and you've lived in word and in deed. And he tells them that he has set before them an open door. I believe that it's clear from what follows that this, that what is in mind here and what we have to take from this is not just that Christ has opened the door for their own personal salvation, but that Christ has set before them an open door to preach the gospel and that Christ has a people in this place to reach. He has set before them an open door. As Philadelphia, when I made some mention of what the city and its history was, as Philadelphia was a missionary city to spread the Greek culture to the Lydians, so is this church to be a missionary city. It is set there to spread the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ into a lost and dying place. He has set before them an open door. Christ is assuring this small body of believers here that has little strength, though they have little power, 
He has opened a door here and he will make the teaching and the preaching of his word successful. They have kept his word and it's his word that will not return void. But it will accomplish whatever it is that Christ sets it forth to accomplish. And the Lord himself has opened this door and will accomplish this work through his means of placing his people in this city of Philadelphia. And lastly here, there is an open door which is made possible in the ultimate sense by the death of Christ on the cross. There would be no open door for salvation had Christ not been willing, not lived perfectly, wholly, without sin, without stain, and taken upon himself the sacrifice that was required by the wrath of God the Father against sin. He took that on himself and made a way of salvation for his people. There would be no open door had Christ not died and rose again. It would not be possible. And no one can shut it. It is not within man's power that Christ having opened the door, it is not within man's power to shut that door. This is most wonderful news to a church or anyone, including us, who are living in such an ungodly place under persecution from those in the immediate context here who are even calling themselves Jews. In verse 9, we see that there is this synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Well, they can't shut the door. The Romans can't shut the door. The synagogue of Satan can't shut the door. Christ, the Holy One, the True One, the One with the keys has opened the door and there's no one that's going to shut it while He wants it to remain open. He has opened it and will bring all those for whom He died through that open door. His grace is irresistible and it conquers and brings many sons to glory making those who are opposed to him willing in the day of his power. This is the gospel that we are not ashamed of that is able to accomplish this. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, verse 9, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Listen to the beholds. Behold, I will. Behold, I will. Christ is saying, get your eyes open. I'm going to show you some things here. I'm going to show you my power. Well, we have dealt with this. this these are Jews. The, the, these are those who say they are Jews and are not. We've dealt with this a couple times before, but 
we will remember that these are Jews who prided themselves on being of God's, of God's chosen people, of, of the lineage of Abraham, right? These are those who were of the people which God had made a covenant with, but had forfeited the right to be called God's people. They have rejected this holy one. They've rejected this true one. They rejected the reality, the substance of that which all the Old Testament system for Israel pictured. They rejected the reality and the substance of that which, when it came. And they have become instruments in the hands of Satan himself. That's why he refers to them as the synagogue of Satan. In John 8... 39 through 47, we have a passage that is very interesting in, in light of this. They answered him, they answered Christ, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. They are of the synagogue of Satan. They are of their father, the devil. These are some of the branches that are spoken of in Romans 11, which were broken off from that olive tree in their unbelief and have become servants of sin and the devil. Then he says, back in Revelation, verse 9, second part, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I loved you. This does not mean that they will worship those in the church here in Philadelphia, or by extension that they will worship the true church throughout all ages, but that they will one day learn that Christ was the Holy One, that Christ was the true one, and will bow the knee to this fact, and will know by this that Christ loved His people." and gave himself for them, that they are victorious in him and have been given life because he loved them. This may be in the end of all things, that, 
that when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that we read about in Scripture. But in the context of this passage where Christ is set before this church an open door, I can't help but infer that he has in mind, that what he has in mind is that through the door he opened, and the church keeping his word and lifting up his name, that many of those here who persecuted the church from even this synagogue of Satan, many who slandered the church will be brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be made saints who will worship in spirit and in truth with those who they persecuted. What a remarkable thing to have a view of those who were defiant rebels and enemies of God bowing down in front of you and worshiping Jesus Christ the Lord and coming to a knowledge that though they persecuted you, the love of Jesus Christ was shed abroad in your hearts. What an amazing thing. This is the work of Christ made possible by the door that He has opened here, accomplished through the preaching of His name and His glory given power by the Holy Spirit that He sends from the throne. We have so many examples of this throughout history. I think of Robert Murray McShane and his church there in Dundee, Scotland. There was a drunkard in town who wanted to come and he had heard about Robert Murray McShane and his preaching and the truth that was being proclaimed there and he wanted to go so he could laugh and slander the church. So he went into the service with that being his intent, that being his purpose. And he sat there in the back and he heard the opening prayer from McShane and McShane said, Holy Father. And he said, God is that man's father. Didn't even get through an opening prayer before the Spirit of the Lord grabbed a hold of that man who came to slander the gospel and made a saint out of him. Think about the Apostle Paul. The man who held the garments, the outer coats, the cloaks of the people who stoned Stephen. The church was fearful of Paul. Even after hearing that the Lord had done something amazing. This is, do you know who this is? This is Paul. He's the persecutor of the church. He is the persecutor of the church. He's been given authority to go and grab us for preaching Christ, to throw us into jail, leading to our deaths. This is Paul. And Christ came and arrested Paul and gave him a new heart and repentance and faith. And the man who was the persecutor of Christ became the proclaimer of Christ. Fellowship with those who he once persecuted. The Philippian jailer, when Paul and Silas were in prison, the man who held them in the stocks. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This 
is what God does when Christ opens the door. Verse 10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Simon Kistemacher says something here that I think is worthwhile. He says, Times of testing come to any church and to all believers in every age. As the church in Smyrna was cast into a period of persecution, so the church in Philadelphia experienced its hour of trial. This does not mean that Christians will not suffer physical death in these periods, but that God protects them from a death, and I'm adding this, far greater than physical death. He says that God protects them from spiritual death. They are all overcomers during their sojourn on this earth. The hour of trial is not limited to one particular event, but gives a telescoped picture of the entire range of trials. It concerns not merely Philadelphia, but refers generically to all the trials that precede the return of Christ. Furthermore, it encompasses the whole earth so that the entire church at one time or another before Christ's return endures severe tribulation. I want to I point out something here real quick, and I have kept throughout this from having any commentary or really addressing the overall schemes and systems of eschatology. But right here is a passage which needs to be addressed, which is affected by these systems of eschatological understanding and theories. There are those in certain camps who use this particular verse, verse 10, they, they use this verse as a proof text for a rapture of the church prior to the point which they call the Great Tribulation period. I am deeply convinced that this is a twisting of Scripture. That this is reading into Scripture. We want to read what Scripture has to say. We want to take the reading of Scripture void of any of our desires or understandings about what that Scripture says and understand exactly what Christ meant from this Scripture. We don't want to use eisegesis where we take what we believe to be true or what we want to be true and infuse that into Scripture. And those that use this as a proof text, I fear, are guilty of that. There is no necessary inference here from this passage pointing to a rapture of saints before a great tribulation period. Instead, I see the context of this, speaking of this period, this hour of trial, as being endured by the saints of God, for Christ himself tells them, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. There is no need for an admonition to hold fast if you don't have to endure. Turn with me real quick to John 17. And I want to show you something that I think has bearing on this. John 17, we have here the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. He's about to be arrested, about to be 
uh, sentenced to death. He's about to be crucified. John 17, verse 14 through 18. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Not taken them out of the world. Christ does not ask that his people are taken out of this world to to, uh, alleviate them, to, to benefit them by not having to go through tribulation. He's not asking that they be taken out of the world that hates them and hates him or the trials and tribulations that are going to exist. Instead, he asks the Father to keep them from the evil one, to protect them in the midst of these things, just as he calls the church in Philadelphia and us to hold fast, keep enduring, keep professing, keep confessing, hold fast with that endurance you have already exhibited, and he will keep them from the hour of trial. Not that they won't go through the trials, but so that the trials will not overcome them. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Fear not, I've redeemed you, he says. I've called you by your name, by name. You are are mine. You're going to go through these things, but I'm going to be with you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fire, and there was a fourth one there with them. He didn't keep them out of the fire. They endured through the fire. God did not save Noah and his family out of the flood. He was with them and protected them during the flood. This church remains in this area, not this church but ones that have been successful in linking to this church are still in existence in this location, which is now called Alasair today. They've endured. They've held fast. He says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast. He's not going to tarry long. He'll come again. Don't turn back. Don't falter. Don't give in. Endure. Hold fast. 
I'm coming and I will not lose you. It's he who endures to the end who will be saved. It's that one that proves the existence that true salvific, true saving faith has been made known to that individual. Even so, come Lord Jesus is our watchword. Even today. Hold fast to this promise that he is coming soon. Each generation needs to hold this as its banner. We hold this for he comes with grace. He comes with power. He comes to sustain. He comes to minister his word through his church. And one day he will come again to call his people home to glory. One day. The dead in Christ rising first and those who are yet alive meeting them in the air. We hold on to the very end. Whether death may come or we're yet alive to experience it with our own eyes. I don't know whether I want to be dead and see and, and be raised from the grave or to see it all happening. Either way, he's coming again. The one who conquers, I will make him a temple, a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from, the God out of, from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Verse 12. A pillar. A pillar is not a temporary part of a structure. Uh, though these Christians and we as Christians may have but little power, Christ will make us into a pillar in the temple of God the very place where God dwells for eternity. Some may say, and I often think that what an amazing thing it would be just to sit at the threshold of the temple. Just to peek in, just to catch a glimpse into that temple, to catch a word of what is being said. Oh, if I could just be a doorkeeper. Or if I could just be the, the steward that stands there and holds the coats of those that are entering in. But Christ says, no, I'm going to make you a pillar in my temple. Permanently part of the structure. Like the twin towers of Solomon's, pillar, uh, Solomon's temple, the pillars that were built there. Uh, Jachin, which means he shall establish, and Boaz, in it is strength. Pillars permanent in the temple of our God. You know, there are still pillars that are standing in the ancient ruins of Philadelphia. Still pillars. And there, it, like I said, it's said that there are those who still profess Christ in that area because they endured. Christ set before them an open door to preach the gospel. They may still be few in number, but they're still preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The door has not yet been shut. Well, he shall never go out. How difficult in this life is it that we have with the flesh? One minute we feel the presence of God, and then we're beset by sin, or beset by hardship, and we feel that the presence of God is far from us. One day... One day, like the promise given to these Christians, we will never more go out. This city was under the constant, we talked about this earlier, it's kind of where it comes into play. This city was under constant threat of earthquake and tremors. 
and they lived outside the city. One day, they will be brought into the city of God and no more go out. There's coming a day when the Christians will enter into that city and never have to leave. Never. What a joy to be in the presence of God eternally without the presence of sin so that we may enjoy His holy being eternally, His holiness in heavenly felicity, as R.C. Sproul used to say. The felicity of heaven, the joy of heaven. Well, the name of God, His city, and His Son, Christ will be written on His people. Revelation 14, verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Revelation 22, 4, They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. The name of the new city. This city of Philadelphia was named again and again. It went through various names. It was called uh, Neo Caesarea and Flavia and all these different names. Uh, they, they had been known by. Uh, they had no lasting name for their city. It's not Philadelphia today. It's Alisaire. Not even Philadelphia today. But there is a time coming when we shall be of one city whose name will never change. Ezekiel names this city. In Ezekiel, when he's looking forward and sees this heavenly Jerusalem, he names the city in Ezekiel 48.35. He says, And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. That's the name of this city. And His new name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the name of Christ. We read earlier in Revelation 19 that our pastor read for us prior to singing the hymns this morning, this conquering Savior shall be called faithful and true. He shall be called the Word of God. And He shall be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then we have the command to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to this church. Hear it. I wish we had unlimited time to look at much more detail in these things this morning. There's so much doctrine here in these few verses. There's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of, uh, and deity of the second person of the triune God. Christ Himself. Election is found here. Human depravity is found in these passages. Atonement is here. Irresistible grace is here. Perseverance of the saints is found here. So much could be said of this. But let us end it here as we have heard what the Spirit has said to the church at Philadelphia. This door that Christ has opened and set before the world, set before this place where we dwell, will one day shut. He will one day shut it. 
much like the door of the ark which God Himself shut, and no one could again open to enter in and be saved from His wrath, so will the open door of salvation be shut and forever sealed. This patience, this long-suffering of the Lord won't last forever. He says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, For He says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, behold, don't miss this. Now is the day of salvation. In the close of this book, Revelation, Revelation 22, 16 through 17, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit, and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price. Let them come. Don't let shyness. Don't let fear of what others think. Don't let guilt and the feeling of inadequacy put off seeking Christ. The door may close at any moment for you. The words of the hymn we sang earlier sum it up. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Christ did not come to save the whole. Christ did not come to save the strong. Christ did not come to save the healthy, but He came to save the sick. He came to save the dying. He came to save those who are sinners. You have no merit with which to attract Him, yet this is no hindrance. Are you thirsty? Come. Do you hunger for something enduring? Come. Are you lost and without hope? Come to Christ. Are you weary of having no abiding place? Come to Christ. There is no condition to which you must arrive except that you be in need. Salvation is a gift, it's not a wage. It's to be received by another's merit, by the merit of Jesus Christ Himself. It's not a due for a job well done. It's a provision for one who is destitute. One who is needy. One who is dead. Come to Christ. Tell your loved ones to come. Tell your neighbors to come. Tell your slanderers to come to Christ. Tell your enemies to come. Oh, that God would bring them to worship and know the love of Christ that He had for you and that they may bend on, down on bended knee and worship Jesus Christ 
and know that Christ loved you and experience for themselves the Holy One, the true one, that they might experience for themselves the love of Christ, that we may behold the wondrous salvation that only the triune God, the Holy One, the true one can accomplish to make enemies sons and daughters. To make the dead live. To make those hostile to you and to your Savior to fellowship with one accord. To praise Him. To praise His works before you. May we behold the great power of the work of Christ while he keeps the door open of salvation. May we see many brought into this city, made fellow citizens of a city which Hebrews tells us is not made with human hands, but its designer and builder is God. He who has a hear, ear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had, Lord. I pray that you would just minister to our hearts, Lord. May we lift you up around uh, to those who have need. May we uh, point them to Christ. May we uh, be given opportunity to speak. May we be given boldness, Lord, that we may, may preach Christ unashamedly, unapologetically with boldness, that we might preach Christ to those who are lost, those who are dying, those who are needy, whether they're friends or enemies, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would just, in some way, make this church uh, useful as the open door is set before us to preach and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.